CBN FM and Thursday nights at 7, it's Face the Music. 60 minutes of vintage recordings, traditional jazz, and other analgesics. A public service of Radio Free Ann Arbor. Broadcasting from the University of Michigan, WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. In Technicolor. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so happy to be speaking with Michael Sandel, uh, joining us via phone um, from Boston. Uh, Michael, welcome to the program. Great to be with you, T. <laughs> and are you indeed in Boston at this moment? Well, actually, in Brookline, Massachusetts, right near Boston. 
Oh, okay, okay. And you'll be on your way to Ann Arbor shortly because you'll be here on Friday at 4 p.m. giving a talk at Rackham Auditorium. Um, so you're hopping on the, the, the plane really soon, maybe tomorrow. Tomorrow, yes. I'm looking forward to my visit to Ann Arbor, and we'll, we'll be talking about what money can't buy, markets, morals, and civic life. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be, uh, it's really going to be something. I can't wait. Um, and the LSA Honors Program, I should give a quick uh, shout out and thank you to Jerry Preston um, for sending along the book, uh, the LSA, LSA Honors Program. All the students read your book this summer, I understand, Michael, What Money Can't Buy, The Moral Limits of the Markets. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled that they all, all read it and uh, I'm looking forward to the chance to talk with the students and uh, on, uh, to hear what they think. And you actually, um, you, you mean that genuinely in all, authentically, because when, when people come on Friday to Rackham Auditorium at 4 p.m., um, they should be ready to speak too, right? They should be That's maybe right. ready to participate. Exactly, because the the way I lecture is not just to speak at the audience, but to pose some questions, including moral dilemmas about what should and should not be up for sale in this case when we're talking about the role of money in markets in our lives. And then I'll, at a certain point, invite members of the audience to speak up, to offer their views. And then we'll have a kind of discussion, a debate, in which the members of the audience can participate. And then I'll react and try to draw some conclusions, bring out some of the larger philosophical themes about how we can reason together about hard ethical questions. So it will be very much a, a participatory event, I hope. And, and you, say how we, you say how we can reason together Michael, that seems really key to your your approach to your uh, to being a philosopher as well as as a teacher. Well, it is. Uh, there are some people who think that philosophy belongs in the heavens; that it's <laughs> a realm of ideals far beyond the the lives we live. But I I think philosophy belongs in the city, where wherever citizens gather. If you go back to the origins of political philosophy with Socrates, Socrates didn't give lectures. He didn't even write books. He walked around the city. He went down to the port in ancient Athens and engaged people in discussion about justice and about the good life but always in relation to the lives they were living and to the convictions they had. And I think Socrates was onto something. I think, to, uh, I think we need to reconnect philosophy with our everyday lives and public discourse, um, not least to provide a corrective to the emptiness of public discourse that we see all around us, especially as the presidential campaign heats up. Oh, Seriously, that uh, I'm so that's one of the reasons why when I also talk with my students, Michael, um, I'm encouraging them to go and experience this event because you, you're sort of bringing it to this large 
auditorium. Um, we won't be wa walking around together in Ann Arbor and going to um, Liberty Plaza or um, down to the bus station. <laughs> but um, we'll be bringing this idea of actually, I guess, hearing people's voices, hearing what people have to say. And actually, um, not only that, but um, listening and having a chance to respond to what people right. have to say, a response. Right. And so the larger project is to try um, gradually to invite people to recover the lost art of democratic discourse. We, we sometimes assume that the moral convictions we have are simply simply that, simply convictions or subjective preferences, and that it's impossible to try to reason about them or argue about them or, or to persuade others or to be persuaded. But I think this is a mistake. I think it's too narrow an idea of ethics and of, of moral and political philosophy. I, I think at its best, political philosophy is about dialogue and reasoned argument. It's about cultivating the art of listening, uh, not just listening to the words, but listening for the principles that underlie the positions and the opinions that, that each of us brings to public life and to public discourse. That's the way I've, I've been teaching for, for many years at, at Harvard, and as I've had a chance, especially in, in recent years, to travel around the world, I've, I've tried this in, in many, many places, and I find there's a great hunger, uh, even a yearning of, of young people especially, but not only young people, to, to think together, to reason together about big questions of values that matter, questions of justice, questions about equality and inequality, questions about what it means to be a citizen. And so this way of doing philosophy um, it connects with that yearning and, and gives it a kind of expression. And, and Michael, when you, you're um, listening to you here, uh, I am reminded also that you have uh, uh, offered a class, Justice. Um, Harvard has, um, and I think also in coalition with PBS, um, has made possible uh, for people all over the world, actually, to access online um, your, your course on justice, um, to be sort of go through course material and see some of the lectures and what actually happens um, within the auditorium. Uh, right. And right. For, for many years, I, I taught this course on justice, the one you're referring to, T., uh, to my students at Harvard in a in a beautiful uh, auditorium uh, that holds up to a thousand people, and we've had real discussions and debates about these philosophical questions with a thousand students participating and arguing with one another, and 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 uh, it's been fascinating. We we did an experiment some years ago. We filmed it and put the entire course, the entire semester of lectures online and on television um, to see whether new technology would be a way of opening access to the classroom and making higher education a, a public good, not just a private privilege. That was the goal, just to see what would happen. Well, we never imagined 
what the response would be. Uh, we never dreamt, I certainly never did, that tens of millions of people would would download lectures on, on philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's that's what happened, and it, it's happened all around the world and been translated into many, many languages. And uh, now when I, when I travel, I, I encounter students all over the world who have followed the lectures online, who have listened to the students debating, and who want themselves to join in those debates. And so, uh, so it's been really an astonishing uh, experiment and, and experience, really uh, driving home to me the, the, um, the sense that there's a great hunger to engage in this kind of reasoned debate about big ethical questions that matter. Big ones. I mean, that is kind of incredible because people are always, um, I don't know, not always, that, that's not very generous of me, but it seems like nowadays that can also be surprising because it feels like sometimes people shut down or kind of draw inward um, right. when, when some of these um, challenges present themselves. But when you're going around the world, people almost want to pick up in conversation with you where they feel like um, their mind has been going during these online lectures. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, yes, and and one uh, it, it's in in one case we had as many as uh, as fourteen thousand people come to to a lecture, an interactive lecture. It was in an outdoor amphitheater in Seoul, Korea, but we still had participation. Uh, we had translation. Uh, we though many of the uh, participants uh, had quite good English. Um, so regardless of the size or the scale, uh, I think it is possible to engage in a kind of reasoned debate or set of debates about justice and, and the good life and what are our obligations to one another and what, what should we do about rising inequality and what should be the role of money and markets in a good society. These are questions people are eager to discuss. And that's what we're going to do in Rackham Auditorium uh, on Friday. Right. A, a slightly smaller audience than 14,000, perhaps, <laughs> but nonetheless right. Right. energetic. So we'll, we'll take a short break. And as Michael said, um, he will be coming to Ann Arbor and speaking at Rackham Auditorium Friday, December 11th at 4 p.m. Um, today on Living Writers, Michael Sandel is here. We've got his book, What Money Can't Buy, The Moral Limits of Markets on the Table with us. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. As I went walking, I saw a sign there And on the sign it said no trespassing But on the other side it didn't say nothing And that sign was made for you and me This land is your land and this land is my land From California to the New York Island From the Redwood Forest in the shadows of the steeple, I saw my people In the relief office, I saw my people As they stood hungry, I stood there asking 
this land really made for you and me? Good afternoon. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. And today on the program, Michael Sandel joins us via phone from Brookline, Massachusetts. Um, Michael, thanks so much for choosing the music for today's program, Uh, um, especially especially asking to play those two verses of Woody Guthrie's um, This Land. is your land, um, which we just had a chance to hear because those verses are often, uh, I don't know, people don't often get to singing those verses. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's true. The song is almost a kind of anthem. It was written by Arlo Guthrie during the Depression. It's become a kind of um, American anthem. Um, And yet the two verses that we just heard are rarely played and rarely heard. We, we're more familiar with the first couple of verses and the last, which are more upbeat and celebratory um, of, American, of American life and citizenship and community. But Arlo Guthrie, writing this song during the Depression, brought a critical eye to the American dream, uh, including uh, uh, one that brought out the inequality and the social exclusion. Uh, and, and so he wrote a, wrote a phrase, uh, a verse that included this reference to the no trespassing sign, yes. the insistence on private property, and also about those who were lined up at the relief office, uh, desperate for help. And it's interesting that we've kind of dropped those verses out of our present understanding and celebration of this land is your land, this land is my land, and it's, it's interesting to listen to them in, in retrospect. It is, and to... Um, bec- because actually, Michael, when we were looking first for the song to play it this afternoon, um, we pulled an album uh, off one of the uh, the many uh, shelves of records here at the station and <laughs> put it on the turntable. And um, I was telling uh, the Liz, our engineer, that where you know where it might fall, like looking further into the song for the verse. But the right. the actual the song that was on, featured on this album that was quite old didn't even have these verses on it. So those had been taken out. So it was really just the celebratory part of the song on this one album. So then we had to find another version, the 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 true longer version of the song. That's interesting. Yes, and it. It's even in that, um, in your search for the version that included these verses, uh, it, it's really a, it's a tale about memory and yes. about the way memory and sometimes selective memory um, constitutes our sense of who we are as Americans, who we are as a people. And in some ways, the, the American story is an ongoing the contest or debate about memory, historical memory, and in this case, uh, memory of the verses of a song. Um, even with textbooks in some states, um, when we're looking at American history, which is quite recent, too. Um, right. Uh, not, not that many um, 
decades and decades of history that we have that we need to already, um, you would think, need to be collapsing it <laughs> to make yes. room for the, the new history. Yes, it is. It is a wonderful thing. I'm so glad you picked that song, Michael, because of this idea that it it was, I mean, maybe there were even more verses that we don't, like when he was drafting the song and composing it originally, but his whole version of the song, it is a celebration of America, but it, it includes this critical eye that you mentioned, but it's a whole it's it's yes. having both parts that make it the song that it's meant to be. Yes, and and some some might say, well, let's set those let's set the darker side of the American experience. Um, let's let's not emphasize it because we want the more uplifting patriotic verses. But I think that for for Arlo and Woody Guthrie. Um, True patriotism requires both both the celebratory and the critical dimensions of the song, because true patriotism requires looking squarely at our shared experience and acknowledging the distance we have still to travel to bring about a just society. Yes, and it's not as if these... The, the things in the song have disappeared or become less important or pressing or questions that we need to consider. Um, right. People are, um, if people are still at the relief office, people are still standing there hungry. Um, so we must, I, we must confront, we not confront necessarily, but we must see it as part of the whole and, and, and try to grapple with right. it. Right. Well, Michael, so we have, let's talk a little bit about, about your book, because we've been talking about um, your earlier, um, your class that also has a book, Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do? We've been yeah. talking about that. Um, so let's, let's focus now on what money can't buy, the moral limits of markets, um, out with FSG. Um, you have a section to read for us. Uh, would you mind introducing it? And um... Sure, I'd be happy to. The book poses a, a question. Um, what should be the role of money in markets in a good society? Today there are very few things that money can't buy. And you might even say that over the past few decades we've, we've drifted almost without realizing it from having a market economy to becoming a market society. The difference is this. A market economy is a tool, a valuable and effective tool for organizing productive activity. But a market society is a place where almost everything is up for sale. It's a way of life in which market thinking and market values begin to reach into almost every aspect of life, personal life, uh, family life, health, education, law, the media, politics. And so the question the book asks is, should we worry? Should we worry about this tendency? Or, uh, and if so, what should we do about it? And how can we figure out where markets belong and where they may crowd out non-market values worth caring about? So those are the questions of the book. And in the passage, um, here, uh, I'll read a short passage, 
uh, that tries to explain why we have been recently, especially, in the grip of a kind of market faith. You might even call it a market triumphalist faith. Uh, by, by the faith, I mean the, the conviction that market mechanisms are the primary instruments for achieving the public good. Why is that so appealing? So here I'll read, read a couple of paragraphs that try to address that question. Thank you. Part of the appeal of markets is that they don't pass judgment on the preferences they satisfy. They don't ask whether some ways of valuing goods are higher or worthier than others. If someone is willing to pay for sex or a kidney and a consenting adult is willing to sell, the only question the economist asks is, how much? Markets don't wag fingers. They don't discriminate between admirable preferences and base ones. Each party to a deal decides for himself or herself what value to place on the things being exchanged. This non-judgmental stance toward values lies at the heart of market reasoning and explains much of its appeal. But our reluctance to engage in moral and spiritual argument together with our embrace of markets, has exacted a heavy price. It has drained public discourse of moral and civic energy and contributed to the technocratic managerial politics that afflicts many societies today. It would be folly to expect that a morally more robust public discourse, even at its best, would lead to agreement on every question but it would make for a healthier public life, and it would make us more aware of the price we pay for living in a society where everything is up for sale. So not only is that amazing thinking articulated on the page, like how you've built that with your language structure is just wonderful. Like by the end of it, Michael, there's this moment where are you kind of even smiling when you are reading that? Well, not smiling on the inside because it's a very solemn, <laughs> a solemn idea where it's like, what is the price we will pay if, if everything is for sale? Right, right. Well, it's, it's a good question, T. In some ways, the passage I read is very solemn because it's worrying about our present condition and trying to aspire to something better and higher. But the book itself actually consists of, of dozens and dozens of very concrete examples and stories and, and ethical dilemmas about uh, novel uses of money and contested uh, uses of, of markets. Um, everything from whether we should allow free markets in kidneys for transplantation or sex to oh, questions about whether we should protect endangered species by doing what Namibia did last year, auction off the right to trophy hunters to shoot an endangered black rhino. They actually did this. Yeah, what, is, and, what are they uh, thinking? What are they thinking? It's madness. Well, the idea was, well, this is the best way to raise loads of money for wildlife conservation. And they auctioned off the right 
the the winning bid came from a trophy hunter in Texas. Hmm. Who uh, do you want to guess how much he bid for the right to go to Namibia and shoot a black rhino? T. Uh, I feel like it's going to be. Was it something like like five hundred thousand dollars? Well, yeah, you overshot only slightly, three hundred fifty thousand. And this money, they say, is this is the best way of raising money to protect endangered wildlife or take the refugee crisis we have with refugees pouring into Europe from from the Middle East and from North Africa. Uh, the countries of Europe and of the world are having a very hard time agreeing to refugee quotas, countries, how, how many refugees each country should have a responsibility to take in. So some have proposed using a market mechanism to persuade countries to accept larger quotas, allow countries, once the quotas have been assigned, either to meet those quotas by accepting that number of refugees themselves or paying other countries to take in those refugees. And wasn't that so, a for example, a if, if one country, a relatively affluent country, was given a high assignment they, and didn't want to take all those refugees, they could pay some other country to do it for them. Now, the, it, it's, it's an attempt to provide an economic incentive to create more homes for refugees, but the question is, should we do it? Should we do it, or is there a moral cost associated with it, what what would be your reaction to that proposal, T? And wouldn't well, well, actually, because I had a quick question for you on yeah. that, Michael. Because wasn't that didn't you write a public response? Because wasn't it a Nobel Prize winning, uh, maybe economist or so, who actually proposed this plan? Well, this was a slightly different plan, which was to solve the immigration debate. Ah, oh, okay. Gary Becker at the University of Chicago said. One way to cut through all of the controversy about the immigration debate in the respective claims, family reunion, economic need, simply set a price on citizenship, say $100,000 or whatever the market clearing price would be, and admit whoever will pay that price. So selling, selling the right to immigrate, or for that matter, selling citizenship, uh, that was his proposal. So it's, it's related to the use of a market mechanism to solve the refugee crisis, only uh, extending that principle to citizenship. Yes, so it, how, do, how does that strike you? <laughs> it, it makes me feel that the Statue of Liberty must just be weeping big cement tears right now. Send like, me your, <laughs> your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, provided they have $100,000. A wad of cash. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Michael, we, yeah. We, we've got to take a short break on that note, and we'll be right back, okay? <laughs> to, to, yeah. Today on the program, Michael Sandel um, joins us via phone from Brookline, Massachusetts. Michael will be in town in Ann Arbor at Rackham Auditorium on Friday, this Friday at 4 p.m., PM. His book is What Money Can't Buy, The Moral Limits of Markets. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. And now I'd like to sing a tune. It was written especially for me. 
It's titled Strange Fruit. I do hope you like it. If you're just joining us, I'm glad you did. Today's guest on Living Writers is Michael Sandel, joining us via phone from Brookline, Massachusetts. Um, Michael, thanks for picking the songs. We just heard Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit um, during that break. Right. It's it's a hunting song. I, I love Billie Holiday. She's not an easy singer to listen to, but what's so powerful and poignant is um, is the eloquent pain uh, her voice evokes, especially in the song, the beginning of which we just heard, Strange Fruit, which is, uh, which is about lynching. I think it's interesting that you said um, it's Billie Holiday has uh, is like she's a she has a a beautiful voice but not easy to listen to um because for some reason i i feel like it's it connects to um again even thinking of this land as your land this idea of something that is um not just one thing that is actually complicated um right. and necessary to actually lift us into something like uh, like you were saying earlier, like something to aspire to. It's almost hard to find some words in our language for it because to say noble uh, might not have the right connotations either, but something to 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 lift us into a a place where we can actually be open to have a public discourse and to have ideas that are um, n- not the same. Right, right. So it's but what may connect Billie Holiday's music to that way of thinking about public life um, is that her her singing is evocative, it's resonant, it's challenging, provocative, and also inspiring. Yes, all at the same time, and these are features that are worth aspiring to in the way we conduct democratic politics, in the way we conduct public discourse, but we rarely achieve it. And these days, we're falling way short of, of resonance or uh, in, inspiration. So much of our public discourse is empty and hollow of larger moral meaning. It's, which is why 
so much of public discourse these days consists of narrow managerial technocratic talk, or when passion does enter, it enters in the form of shouting matches Mm. of the kind we hear on cable television and much of talk radio, ideological food fights on the floors of Congress, where people are shouting past one another rather than listening to one another and engaging with competing arguments and competing principles and competing conceptions of the public good. And so I, it seems to me that the job of, of philosophy, of moral and political philosophy, and also the job of, of a teacher mm-hmm. is to try to cultivate in citizens, in readers, in students, um, the capacity for something better, a better, kind, more elevated kind of of public discourse, where we develop the art of listening and the skills of reasoning about big questions of justice and the common good. Michael, this this actually reminds me of something that I've been thinking about and wondering about in relation to um, universities, um, public universities, where... Yeah. It, it almost seems because I because what you're saying is right and true, like what we should be trying to uh, sort of open up students to be able to think and to to think through ideas and, and in a space together as well, even if the, some of them are contradicting or complicated. Sure. Um, I, but I wonder now, because it seems like maybe in the last, I, I have a, a very limited perspective on this, obviously, um, in time frame, but maybe in the last 10 years or so, there's been a shift in universities where it almost feels like it's becoming related to the market more of a consumer culture like the universities maybe aren't these places of like, uh, I don't know, where people are coming to discuss knowledge and ideas and, and argue through them. Uh, right. But but rather something about um, maybe a student as consumer or as customer um, yeah. in the classroom. I think there's what do you a lot think to about that. that? And, and what do you think the effect of that is on what you were just talking about, about the need to be open and to be able to speak and exchange ideas in a classroom? Right. I think there is a tendency um, to, that, that's been afoot in the last 10 or 20 years, uh, enormous uh, commercial pressures and market pressures on universities that has taken a number of forms. One of them is increasingly to uh, to judge universities based on how well they equip students uh, to fill jobs. Now, that's one purpose of higher education, but not the only and not the highest purpose of universities. Not if to, we're, we're thinking of public discourse or the, right. or the common good. Uh, Right. For with respect to that purpose, uh, you know, the mission of of higher education is to cultivate citizens, to equip students. Uh, see, consumers, consumers. When we think of ourselves as consumers, we think of ourselves as seeking to satisfy our wants, our desires, our preferences, the ones we happen to have. 
when we think of ourselves as citizens, um, we think of ourselves as reflecting critically on the preferences and wants and interests we happen to have and possibly changing them. Yes, hopefully uh, being participants. Yes. Yes, to participate in, to share in self-rule, to participate in deliberation about the common good with others. And to do that is to open ourselves to the possibility that we may change our minds. We may persuade others to change their minds. That's not a consumerist activity. That's a civic project. And I think one of the great responsibilities of universities is to provide occasions in the classroom, but also in extracurricular life, to invite and challenge students uh, to develop these civic capacities, uh, to learn about public affairs, that's part of it, but also to to learn how to deliberate, to reason together in public, to learn how to argue, not just to, to debate uh, in the sense of winning debating points, winning arguments, but actually inquiring with fellow citizens, with peers, fellow students, inquiring into the public good, into the nature of a just society, into our mutual obligations as citizens. These are, are value-laden, normative, ethical questions. And... Our job, I mean, our job as educators, um, is to see to it that universities perform whatever else they do, perform that role. And I'm not sure we're always doing such a such a good job of that. And it's hard to know what to do because I feel like this does connect so much to your your book, Michael. What money can't buy? Um, this idea of like, what do we? Because I, because I wish we, we, I wish we had hours um, to talk about this, so that you could also um, maybe show listeners how you you do ask a series of questions that maybe on the people begin to answer, but then you change um, the the frame of the question slightly, and then right. they start seeing um, maybe together you everyone in during the conversation is uncovering some of the, the principles that undergird um, some of the ideas as people are making decisions in these right, questions right. that well, you Well, shall we, shall we take a small example? Yes, yes. yes. All right. Let's, uh, let's take an example of, of ticket scalping at a concert or um, at a baseball game. Let's say the World Series. The Tigers are in the World Series, let's say, and everybody wants a ticket. Seats are sold out. Is there anything wrong with ticket scalping where some people are selling tickets at above the face value because there's a big market demand or at a, at a Beyonce concert? Anything wrong with that? Right, on StubHub or something, right? Yeah. Is that all right? People do, do it. People do it every day. Yeah. And so in the case of I've the concert, done it, or I've known someone who's done it, so I'll implicate you've known myself. known someone. Yeah. You almost said you had done it. Well, I was, I was a benef- I was, I benefited. <laughs> okay. So you don't see that as a morally troubling or grave practice. I, I take it. I, I, I do because I've, I've really? read that chapter of the, the book, Michael. <laughs> no, but that's all. But, the, but okay, but no. no. But there's nothing. But there's nothing. There may not be anything wrong if if the ticket scalping is for a ticket to a concert. But then, take this 
different example of ticket scalping. In Beijing, there are long lines of people who need at hospitals, at the major hospitals, who need to see a doctor. And they give out the appointment tickets in the morning at the ticket window. And when all the appointment tickets for that day are given out, the window closes. And there's still lots of people in line waiting to see a doctor. They have to wait till the next day or the next. But there are entrepreneurs who hire line standers who get in the line, buy the ticket, which is very cheap, and then they ticket scalp these doctor's appointments to the people further back in the line. So is there a moral difference, T? Here's, here's the first twist. Between ticket scalping for a Beyonce concert and for a doctor's appointment. Yes. Yes. There but in def- both cases, it's supply and demand, supply meeting demand. So what's the difference morally? Right. Well, the, the, it's the, the market doesn't recognize what matters about someone's health and access, like having a right to having a chance to <laughs> have help with yep. their health versus the right to having access to being entertained. Mm-hmm. Okay. Example, so the, right? <laughs> yeah. So the good is so. So the nature of the good is different. Being entertained in the one case, gaining access uh, to medical care in the other. Fair enough. All right. Then one last twist to the argument, um, and I think most people would find morally troubling the ticket scalping outside the hospital for the doctor's appointment. What about a growing practice in American medicine? where more and more primary care physicians are creating concierge medical practices, as they're called, where they radically reduce their patient roster from several thousand per doctor to perhaps two, three, four hundred. And for the payment of an extra annual fee, the patients can have access to same-day appointments, even the cell phone number of their doctor. Is there anything wrong with that? Yes, this is I this is very very troubling because it's it's I, I it's troubling in a way that's very different than um your previous question um because yeah. this one if you can look on the side of the doctors and see like how the health insurance system has maybe driven them to this overloaded situation and maybe driven down like the the ability to give care to each individual patient that sure. they see per day but then putting a price tag again so that it's only the very elites who that who will have access to this type of health care is is just again it's it's just wrong mm. okay so you would see you, you would see that as morally objectionable for the same kind of reason as ticket scalping outside the beijing hospital is yes interesting now i suspect if we put this to the participants in rackham auditorium on friday afternoon i suspect we'll have a range of opinions on this question I think some I think many here's just a guess many would worry about the uh, ticket scalping outside the hospital but many would defend the concierge medical practice and draw a distinction between the two and then we could hear if that's the case we could hear from those who think that these are 
morally similar as you do, T, and we could hear from those who think they're morally very different. Um, and then we would have the beginnings of, of an interesting discussion about the role of markets and uh, market reasoning with regard to, to health care, just as we, we could do with regard to some of the earlier questions you and I were discussing about citizenship, the right to immigrate, the taking in of refugees, the buying and selling of, of sex or of kidneys for transplantation. So what the book really tries to do is to look at a whole range of questions like this, or for that matter, auctioning off the right to shoot an endangered rhino and asking where markets serve the public good and where they don't belong, where they may bump up against or crowd out non-market values worth caring about. Uh, Michael, is there a way that then once, like if we're just, if we're talking about this, if we're proposing that we have become perhaps um, we're, 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 America is being a market society rather right. than having a market economy. Um, if, if that's the case, and as human beings, we are always sort of obsessed with this idea of progress. What does it take then for us to actually um, maybe stop this rolling effect or this rolling forward of it? Because yeah. in, in what, what money can't buy, you, you actually do say um, maybe... Two, like a decade ago or two decades ago, some of the things that are privatized that we would have been, that were sort of shocking at the time, maybe some right. hospitals or prisons, and now just seem like the norm. And what we were talking right. about universities and we're talking about this concierge medicine, I can see how next year or the year after, that's also going to seem like the norm in a way that feels chilling. Yes, it's true. Uh, there does seem to be a drift in this direction. Take one example that many people find shocking but may soon take for granted. There's a place in, in Santa Barbara, California, uh, there's a jail there where if you don't like the standard accommodation in the jail, and if you have the money, you can buy a prison cell upgrade for something like $82 a night. Now, to most people around the world, this seems shocking. <laughs> To some Americans, <laughs> do people say only it seems in America? Troubling. Yes, yes. To some Americans, it seems troubling, but to others, it's beginning to seem familiar. So you're right. Norms change, and we seem to be drifting in the direction of just accepting that money in markets govern access to more and more aspects of the good life. And so separate us, it? and separate us, right, Mark, Michael? Like the the markets, like how that's dictating our lives is actually then making it so that we don't see people maybe who are in different economic spheres. Like if you right. if you go to a doctor's office that's concierge medicine, you're gonna see very different people or maybe not many people at all because they'll have it so well timed <laughs> that there won't be, you know, a wait, et cetera. But if you were to go to a, a city's public clinic, then you see very different people, right? Right. That's right. So and and I think this is a very important aspect of this. One of the one of the accumulated effects 
of putting more and more aspects of life up for sale is that there is a, a gradual erosion of the common spaces and public places that bring people together in the ordinary course of, of life. And there are fewer and fewer occasions for class mixing, for encountering people uh, from different backgrounds, different walks of life. And this, I think, is, is dangerous because it takes a toll on, on commonality, on the sense that we share a common life, the, the sense that we are all in this together. The, the easier it is, the more routine it becomes for the affluent to opt out of common spaces and public places and institutions, uh, the less we experience the shared life of common citizenship, the less it's true, um, as uh, Arlo Guthrie in, uh, wrote, uh, that this land is is your land, this land is my land. So the ambivalence that we were talking about before and in in the Arlo Guthrie song has has arisen again as it does repeatedly throughout our history, this time at the hands of, of market thinking, market values, and the growing role of money in our lives. And and the dilemmas connected with this are, are the dilemmas that I, I hope we can talk about in, in Rackham Auditorium on Friday afternoon. And talk about together and have and welcoming these ideas. Because I, I loved how you said, well, you feel this way, T, because I did. I think I became very, very sort of strident about it in one moment. <laughs> Passionate, let's say. Passionate. Passionate. Thank you. That's a much more, that's far more generous, Michael. <laughs> um, but, but this this commonality, like that, it does feel like it's something that's part of our our nation's foundation myth, too. Even if it wasn't always true uh, in yep. the if you're looking at the history or so, but the right. I, the idea that we yeah. we believe in about ourselves. Has and that commonality, both as a belief, both as an aspiration, and as a part of our lived experience, that commonality uh, is slipping away. And we we see this if we listen to some of the presidential candidates speaking. We we see this if we look around and and notice the uh, increasingly separate lives that people of affluence and people of modest means live. And so. Uh, the the book is really an attempt to to get at this question and to try to reimagine public discourse in a way that could begin to address it. Michael, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I, I have, My pleasure. I, I treasure this conversation. Um, Michael will be Michael Sandel will be coming to Ann Arbor uh, this Friday, December 11th, to speak at Rackham Auditorium at 4 p.m. Um, his his latest book and what this talk will be centering around is what money can't buy: the moral limits of markets. Um, Michael, if people are um, if when they're preparing to come to this, should they should they bring some questions of their own, or will you have the questions to? to guide everyone well i'll have questions but people are welcome to bring their questions their thoughts and we will have a discussion see where it leads 
Thank you so much, Michael. I'll see you there. I'll see you Thank there. you, Chief. Thanks so much. <laughs> You've been listening, everyone, to Living Writers. Today on the program, Michael Sandell. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. This land is your land, and this land is my land. From the California to the New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. As I went a walk in that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway, saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. I roamed and rambled and I followed my footsteps to the sparkling sands of her diamond deserts. All around me a voice was sounding, this land was made for you and me. When the sun comes shining, then I was strolling, and the wheat fields waving, and the dust clouds rolling. The voice was chanting as the fog was lifting, this land was made for you and me. This land is your land, and this land is my land, from California to the New York Island, from Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. When the sun comes shining, and I was strolling, and the wheat fields waving, and the dust clouds rolling, the voice coming chanting, and the fog was lifting, this land was made for you and me. Takes the snap, takes the handoff to Smith, rolling to his right, still looking for a receiver. Breaks through the tackle and he's got a seam! Down the sideline, touchdown Michigan! Gardner takes the shotgun snap, looks to his right and connects. Reaching for the end zone, touchdown Michigan, Amara Darma. Gardner takes the handoff to Smith, looking, firing, Jake Buck, one-handed catch! He caught it! Unbelievable catch! There we go. Now, now we're cooking. Uh, you are listening to Wolverine Wednesday here at WCBN 88.3 on your dial. Of course, you can also listen online. We've got another edition of Wolverine Wednesday. Uh, as always, I'm your host, Zach Shaw. And joining me in the booth today, Alec Geese and Morris Fabry. Uh, guys, uh, football's, football's wrapping up, but there was some news yesterday. Uh, for those of you listening, we're also going to get to basketball and hockey. But we're going to start with football uh, because there was some, some good news for Michigan. 
Uh, obviously, the Citrus Bowl isn't quite where they wanted to be uh, playing the Gators, but it's not a bad bowl. Tickets sold out within eight minutes yesterday, uh, if you can believe that. Uh, people are excited for this game. They're excited. It's another top 25 matchup. They're facing the uh, number 19 Florida Gators. And as far as uh, the personnel, there was some good news yesterday. Jake Butt tweeted out that he was going to stay. He loves the school. He loves his friends. He loves his teammates uh, too much. He has an opportunity to become the greatest tight end in Michigan history. Uh, and he has he has some other things he wants to chase for as far as team goals as well. Big Ten championship, national championship, trip to Rose Bowl, uh, maybe even more. Uh, guys, Jake Butt decided to stay. Uh, generally a celebrated decision. What is your take on the decision? Well, I thought it was, you know, as a fan, I was absolutely elated. Michigan's offense really relies on Jake Butt to add the dimension of a tight end running up the seam, especially because it doesn't really have anybody who's risen as a, as an option in the slot for this team. You know, Grant Perry, just a freshman. The Freddie Canteen got converted back to defense at, when he was a slot option. So this is not really a team that can go five wide and, you know, spread and shred. Harbaugh's offense doesn't really rely on that anyway, but you know, Jake Butt is basically the only way Michigan can avoid just relying entirely on Darbo and Chestnut on either side of the field 